Coming to you live from a radio tower near you, studying the intersections of video games and science. This is Pokey Science. Hey, welcome back to Pokey Science. I'm Madison, and today I'm joined with Brittany and Dr. Ray. So today's episode, we're going to be doing an interview here, uh, talking all about genetics. And we have a guest here. And so I'm going to ask you, who are you and what is your background? Hi, everyone. I am Dean. You can, I guess, say that I'm a biologist with a lot of different hats that I wear. Dr. Dean. I guess. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you like can just call me dance would have been yeah. better, like jeans. <laughs> <laughs> the Gene Dean guy. I have a biology background that kind of spans the gamut of different fields of biology. And that's just because I've had a little bit of an orthodox, I guess, journey through biology. So uh, I got my bachelor's in science in uh, Kent State, and then I stuck around for my master's in ecology, where I studied uh, invertebrates in the soil and leaf litter up in Michigan. And uh, I was looking at the communities of those organisms, how they change over space and time. Um, so real cool star trekking in bug stuff in the dirt. I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, you were you were so remote that we couldn't get in touch with you for weeks. Oh, well, not not when I was at Kent. That was when I was at Central Michigan, probably. And so I went there for my PhD and I told myself that I was never going to study microbes. I was looking for any lab um, that didn't study microbes, found a lab up there that studied invasive species using genomic techniques, which were techniques I was familiar with for my master's. Uh, heard back, said, the guy said, um, oh, yeah, we don't have uh, space in the lab anymore, but how about this guy? And he was a microbiologist. I'm like, God, well, <laughs> so I gave him a chance and I ended up studying microbes and I am converted. I love microbes. They're little superheroes. And uh, I'll probably mention them a few times today. From there, I did a little postdoc up on Beaver Island in the middle of Lake Michigan. Would not do that again because uh, it's very <laughs> isolating. And uh, went from there to run a genomics core at a major hospital for about four years. Uh, worked with medicine instead of, uh, uh, I guess, like environmental biology. So that was a bit of a shift, but I learned a lot there. Now I uh, work in biotech. So, um, yeah, we're a lot of different hats. Real quick, broadly speaking, like what is the field of genetic? That's what we're here for today, right? Sure. Yeah, I guess, um, you know, genetics, I'd like to break it up into two different categories, right? And so you've got the field of genetics, but I'll be talking a lot about the field of genomics today as well. They both kind of fit under the same DNA umbrella, but they have some fundamental differences and the questions they try to answer, right? And so uh, genetics is more the study of some sort of heritability of genes. You might think, of genes being passed down from parent to offspring or the, uh, I guess, like experiments they learned in high school with the, the plants or the pea pods or the corn that, you know, you have dominant recessive genes, etc. Genomics, on the other hand, is more of the study of the molecular function of genes. And so how are they working at the molecular level? What genes are being transcribed? If you remember from, I guess, like high school or college biology, transcribed into RNA and then translated into a protein, which performs a function for the organism, right? And so um, it's a pretty wide umbrella itself. You know, I could speak ad nauseum on this subject and <laughs> fill the entire however long this goes. 
But yeah, so genetics, more the study of heritability of genes, genomics, the study of the genes themselves. All right. I'm going to just start off by saying the fact that you said you got your bachelor's degree in just science in general was chef's kiss. Thank you. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I was like, every science? Science. All of them. Every available science. Yeah, somebody once told me in college they studied poli-sci, and I thought that meant many sciences. No, it actually means the study of polyamorous people. Yeah. (laughs) I knew that. I knew that. But yeah, I studied just biology, I guess you I could know. say it. It just um, was funny. I ju- yeah. <laughs> I mean, he was doing a lot over there. Overachiever to the extreme. Yeah. Juggled all right. it all. So I'm going to ask a couple little questions here. So we're going to ask what gene editing, gene modification, and what gene engineering are and how we can tell the three apart. Well, I'll see what I can do as far as justice here. You know, I guess uh, genes can be modified using gene editing. And I guess genetic engineering, I I would define as like, you know, the field of all of this, but feel free to correct me because this is a little (laughs) bit outside my scope. I guess you could say gene editing loosely defined as the manipulation of a gene. So you can uh, go in, find a base pair. So if you remember, again, from biology class, uh, DNA is made up of four different bases, A, T, G, and C. And if there's a base or a series of bases in the DNA that are resulting in some sort of problem, mutation, or you want to change it because you want some sort of different expression from that DNA, you can go in there and edit that out or edit something in or change something there, right? And so that is gene editing in a nutshell. Uh, The most popular technique is CRISPR-Cas9. You may have heard of that or CRISPR gene editing um, popularized within the last decade or so. Scientists were using something else before then, a little more challenging, but CRISPR, CRISPR makes it uh, much easier. Oftentimes, you know, this is kind of like a, a scary subject for a lot of people, right? Because there's a lot of, I guess, controversial and ethical concerns when it comes to editing genes, right? People think of like designer babies and all that stuff like that. But uh, by and large, gene editing exper- experiments are mostly centered on model organisms. And uh, those would be like zebrafish, mice, etc. And the overlap in the genomes between some of these model organisms and the human genome can be pretty high, right? Uh, 80% or upwards in a lot of ways. And so they test on these model organisms uh, because of ethical reasons, right? And I guess it depends who you ask, but <laughs> yeah. So uh, It's unethical yeah. to do it on people? <laughs> yeah, but ethical to do it on non-people, I guess, right? So again, depends who you ask, but so a common one that we see, though, is uh, are the glowfish are genetically modified in pet stores, right? That I am not familiar with. Yeah, because I think they have like an insertion from um, from a jellyfish gene. So it's like a green fluorescent protein, protein. So it's actually you can see genetic modifications day to day if you wanted to. I just want to comment two things like in like pop fiction and stuff like you, when you see gene editing with humans, you get like one of two results. You get Gundam where Gundam took it. They're like perfect humans that have like awesome reflexes and designer babies with perfect noses or you get batman beyond where they're like snake people i don't feel like i feel like there's I'm no middle sure ground I did genetically modify some lizards though recently a couple years ago like made some albino lizards or something so i mean i don't think <laughs> jurassic park stuff happened i don't here. i don't think that's gonna like 
reach over to snake people at soon, <laughs> but it's, no, like it's in, albino. In Batman Beyond, they would like splice human genetics with like snake. There was a uh, controversial scientist that went rogue recently, I think in like China or something, who edited the genes of uh, some twins. Yeah. So that that's where we get into the controversy. Stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> One of them's going to grow snake skin and the other isn't. Yeah, I'm not sure how they're doing. I haven't I haven't uh, followed up on that story, but I hope one of the twins like sues him in like 40 years. I think he's in jail. <laughs> Perfect. I think he's under custody in the, uh in China. Yes, on that note, uh so the question I have for you Dean is very simple straightforward one but probably super complex to answer. What is genetic expression? All right, so this is opening a pretty strong can of worms here. So genetic expression, um, you'll often hear it referred to as gene expression. That's just the uh, you know shop talk. You know, you ever see a scientist and you, you say gene expression, it's like saying like, yo, I went and saw tall uh, to like a 50-year-old guy, you know what I mean? They'll be like, oh yeah, tall. All right, so um, gene expression <laughs> defined as uh, it's like upregulation and downregulation of genes, right? And what I mean by upregulation well, let me back up a little bit further, right? And so we've got our genome, and the genome it consists of genes, right? Individual genes, and those genes are coding areas that produce, that allow, like, you know, they can be read and produce a function for something in the body, right? So those genes, basically, they get transcribed into RNA when they're needed. And that RNA hops over to a little ribosome, gets translated into a protein and that protein will perform some sort of function, right? So when we're saying upregulation or downregulation, we're referring to whether that gene is being transcribed into RNA more or less in comparison to either a previous condition or a control or something along those lines, right? And so gene expression is defining you know, what is the transcriptome, transcriptome, as we call it, of a certain condition. And so we're, we're interested in understanding what genes are being expressed, which ones shut off. And so this coding region of DNA, right? Uh, most of the genome is thought to be non-coding information, uh, but the coding regions have these genes, right? And they provide that necessary information for the transcription of RNA. And so... I guess a real world example would be um, if I were to try to ground this a little bit um, from the nebulous theoretical into something that you can hold would be microbes. I'm bringing it back to microbes already. So um, <laughs> when I studied in Michigan, I was looking at microbes that exist in wetlands and wetlands are super cool because they have all these different kinds of microbes because there's a lot of different chemical cycles going on in there. Um, and one of those chemical cycles is denitrification. And there are these microbial taxa known as denitrifiers that basically take oxidized forms of nitrogen. So nitrate, nitrite, uh, nitrogen species that have an oxygen attached to them. And then they break it down and reduce that into uh, dinitrogen or, or other intermediate species. I won't go too deep into that. Now, thermodynamically, those microbes aren't interested in using nitrate or nitrite before they use oxygen. So these microbes typically have genes that allow them to use oxygen like we do for their metabolism. 
and that is a more thermodynamically favorable element. And so once the oxygen is depleted, which commonly happens at night in wetlands, they can switch off those genes that use oxygen and switch on genes that use oxidized form of nitrogen, right? And so that would be an example of gene expression that we can measure in the lab. We could take a soil sample during the day in a wetland and the soil sample during night in the wetland when we know there's oxygen fluctuations, extract all that RNA out of it, sequence it on a DNA sequencer, and then we would be able to tell which of those genes are being expressed. And there's my TED talk. I think I, I think I have like an, like a, an example that like people might understand a little better. Sure. Because we don't all know about microbes. So we do now. <laughs> we do now, but uh, like, everyone. you know, when you go out, if you went out, you drank a lot one night. <laughs> Listen, no, it's easy. It, it makes sense. So the next day you're hungry all day. You know how you get that like feeling like you can't stop eating. So when your liver's processing alcohol, the RNA isn't transcribed to tell your, to turn into the protein that lets your pancreas know we need to break down fat for sugar. So it's like down regulated because your liver's working over time to process the alcohol. So that's why you feel that super hungryness all day when you're like hungover. But that's. Do we have an example I can leave for our, our younger listeners too? I, I can't think of a one for a younger listener. I can only think of that one. That was the first one that came into my head. I'm sorry. Sure. Uh, <laughs> let me think of something here. So, um, but like, so can I just ask really quick? Yeah. So, realistic. So, like, we know that different, like, so different genes for these microbes are expressed at different times. But yep. then, but then, so they still constantly have both sets of genes. It's just one's turning on and the other's turning off. That's right. You know, you're basically, it's like going into a room at night and you need to switch the light on and then you switch it off during the day. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. So I guess, I don't know, like a more, I guess, fundamental example. I'm trying to think of um, some sort of animal that might do something in response to something. I guess, uh, um, you know, if you think about, bioluminescent jellyfish i guess you know um they will have some sort of gene to trigger their bioluminescence right and so a light a jellyfish you know you might not be able to see it in the water um but when it switches this gene on it will start glowing right and so there's an example that you could probably take home to the bank cash that in for some knowledge and there, right there, we just explained all of James Cameron's The Avatar. <laughs> <laughs> why everybody glows and why, I, why everyone glows. I was so bad at paying attention in anatomy and physiology, so that's why I couldn't come up with another example. <laughs> but when I found that out about, like, your liver and pancreas, I was like, oh, that's such a fun fact. I need to commit that to, like, my memory bank forever. <laughs> Great. Okay. Uh, I think we do have one more question before we get into Pokemon. Yeah, so uh, I have another follow-up question for you, Dean. So can you explain to the listeners what is commonly known as a niche or niche, or as we discussed before the podcast started, a niche and its relevance to uh, genetics and genomics? Yeah, I guess, um, you know, whether it's a niche or niche or niche depends on how fancy the organism you're talking about is, right? If it's wearing a top hat, 
niche is probably appropriate, but if it's just got a beanie on, you know, it's a bum, you, you know, niche is fine. I think it's fine. Casual, you know, anyways. Um, so uh, <laughs> to not, uh, extend this any further, uh, niche is just a biological space that an organism fills in a community or an ecosystem, right? And so you have an ecosystem that is filled with a community of organisms and those organisms interact, right? And they keep the ecosystem going, right? It's like a food web. Um, and the niche is that role that that organism plays in that community or in that ecosystem, right? And so it can be loosely defined um, as all the biology and all the interactions that an organism has and why it's there, how it exists there, so on, right? So, you know, what does an organism eat? You know, this uh, caterpillar eats leaves, um, that's a niche it fills, right? Uh, the caterpillar gets eaten by a bird, um, et cetera, right? And so it's like the interweaving kind of everybody has a job, everybody has a role to play. That's effectively what a niche is, you know, and you have different, you know, types of roles that organisms will fill, you know, different types of niches. You can have a generalist species that can live everywhere and doesn't, you know, like we're omnivores, right? For example, you know, I guess evolutionarily, not all of us are omnivores, I'm aware, but uh, <laughs> we have the capability to eat pretty much anything, right? And so we're a generalist when it comes to that. But, uh, you know, some other organisms Just like- not uh, gas station sushi. Don't eat it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And within within reason, you know? So, you know, anything in that 95 percentile of, of edible things, <laughs> gas station sushi being on one end of the spectrum outside of that range. But, you know, like a hummingbird and a certain flower species might- be reliant on each other, right? So they have more of a specialist niche. Um, so it's sort of a nebulous term. There's a lot of, I guess, like what you could ask, you know, a hundred scientists and they'd all give you a different answer, um, but they would all kind of give you the same kind of general idea like I just did. So I think we're going to move on here and talk some about Pokemon and kind of tie this in here. So yes, moving on to the Mons. So now that we know everything about genetics, thanks to what Dean told us. You all uh, have a PhD right now. <laughs> yep. We can answer <laughs> We can all teach classes now. <laughs> Add it to your resumes, everyone. Um, so kind of thinking about genetics and how we can tie this into the Pokemon world. Dean, like, where do you see real world genetics influencing the Pokemon universe? You know, it all comes back to gene expression for me, right? And uh, you know, whenever there is some sort of action, there are genes being expressed that help us perform those actions, right? And that I would say, you know, in a in a Pokemon universe, that probably rings true as well. And so, yeah, I guess from my understanding, Pokemon, a lot of them were inspired i guess their designs were inspired by real world organisms in mind right so you might suggest that there might be some overlapping genes there when they're attacking in a certain way or performing certain uh actions so to speak from an evolutionary perspective it becomes a little bit muddier right because uh you know i i'm going back to uh an age when i played pokemon and that was with red and blue so just so you yeah. Pokemon now does have um, actual Darwinism. Okay. So we do yeah. we, we have it in addition to like the Pokemon evolving themselves. I know you haven't played the latest game. I haven't played the latest games. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I know. Uh, but th it actually is confirmed because we do have, we have convergent and divergent evolution and we actually have common ancestors now. Okay. 
Yeah. All right, so there's like a whole universe that I was not aware that even exists. They did a really good job at this game. I'm just going to put it there. <laughs> all right, so when did that all start? Was that, is that the newest it game? It just came out. And, yeah, well, they started doing uh, Divergent Evolution. Ray, that was Sun and Moon, right? Like Dean, I am a little rusty in some of my okay. middle Pokemon games. I, I, yeah, it was. It would have been. It would have been when you were doing your doctorate because Chris and I played it together. It's it was that game, whatever game that was. But they introduced like uh, variations of Pokemon based upon the region, so essentially divergent evolution. I see. Okay. And the newest one brought in convergent evolution, where you have there's like a water thing that looks like a diglet, but it's not a diglet. It's supposed to be like a um, a gardenial. Okay. But it's that idea of that you know from separate branches you can reach the same end result. All right. I was gonna say yeah, you can't replicate a diglet. Diglet's one of a kind. All right. <laughs> Me and diglet go way back. <laughs> you and diglet. Anyways, I guess like yeah, I guess when I think about like the earliest games with the evolving, you know, there are real world examples of that too, but they're pretty limited, right? And especially in a universe where that was all that was happening. But now, you know, I guess if we're following kind of like the simple or similar, not simple, similar, I guess evolutionary mechanisms that we see in our world, um, then yeah, we could definitely have some conversations there. Yeah, we did. It, they they did a cool job. They actually have like Pokemon from the past, like not like 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 related like common ancestor species. Okay, so we've got some archaeologists in the Pokeverse now. No, we had digging time up travel. these. They gave, they, oh, time travel. We had travel. some like weird time travel stuff. We've got Doctor Who who's going in between. <laughs> got it. And we're definitely going to do episodes here on some of those topics coming up later this year. All right, so. For me, someone who's played competitive um, and someone who's always tried to be competitive in playing, you know, Pokemon breeding has always been like the mechanic that interests me the most. And so when you breed Pokemon, they're hatched with certain uh, what's called individual values, which are like the scores attached to their stats, like their their attack, defense, speed and so forth. But they're also hatched with like specific natures, which is like their, you know, the deposition, the bashful, jolly, timid. But they also have like specific abilities. So, you know, most Pokemon have typically two to three that they can get. Um, And, you know, these are often like inherited traits from parents. Uh, So currently, like you can ensure that you get specific IVs, those individual values or natures or abilities passed down by giving like the parent, uh, you know, items to hold like how would what would your take be on all of this? Um, I guess um, so. The parents are holding items. So are they? Uh, what are they holding? What kind of items are they holding? <laughs> One is a, a piece of, uh, of yarn. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and the other is a is a stone. All right. Um, I guess you know I'll try to abstractly uh, tie back to that. So. Um, some of it you could explain um, with our current scientific laws and earth. Um, others will probably take a little bit of thought. Uh, but uh, first, it sounds like kind of like standard genetics, right, would uh, explain the inherited traits. Um, so, you know, if parent to offspring gene passing. Uh, so if you're passing down the IVs, it sounds like that would be something that was an inherited trait from the parents, right? So typical to what you know, we would inherit from our parents, you know, like my dad's attack is three, my mom's attack is five, so mine is four, right? So and don't tell anyone I told you that it's supposed to be secret. But 
uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess, um, you know, ensuring specific traits, you know, if like that's, that's an unpredictable or that's a predictability that we don't see in the real world. So I don't know how predictive that is, but, uh, you know, if you think about show animals, like dogs, dog shows, horse, like horse racing, right. There's like big money in, uh, breeding horses and breeding bulls and stuff like that, or chickens are actually pretty big here in Ohio for some reason or another, but, you know, there's no full predictability of it all, right? So there's always a little bit of unpredictability or uncertainty there. So if you look at like some of these, these like chicken farms where they're trying to make the best Polish chicken or something like that, they'll have like hundreds of chickens there, right? And they're trying to find the best chicken for the show. You know, they're doing their best to breed the parents to come up with this quote unquote best chicken. But you know, it takes a lot of time and effort to come up with that I guess, combination of the good chicken juice, right? So uh, <laughs> I guess to ensure a specific gene, you know, genetic engineering would have to be something that's implemented. And that's where we start to wade back into that little sea of controversy. But, you know. Designer Pokemon. Yeah, yeah. Designer Pokemon. Uh, designer. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I guess, you know, from a human standpoint, maybe more controversial than Pokemon standpoint, you know, there we'll leave that up to Ash and all those other, I guess, uh, <laughs> does that mean like every, of society? Huh? every trainer has like CRISPR with them? <laughs> yep, exactly. I'm sure you could incorporate it. But you know, if you really want a desired outcome to be very specific, let's say in a perfect world, we know everything about all the genetics. We're not going to think about how genes interact and there's pathways of genes and et cetera, right? So um, you could conceivably, you know, genetically engineer something that is what you would consider perfect. And so those are a couple of different methods that you might think about passing down the IVs. But like when you're thinking about, you know, what are these parents holding so that they can pass down these specific, I guess, abilities or natures and you know maybe an analog would be gene editing or something no they're holding those chinese you know doctors that were implementing the genetically modified eggs yeah pokey docs right that's pocket pokey doc doctor pocket doctor yeah all right dean so some pokemon like deerling change their appearance based on the seasons in the real world, some animals like arctic foxes and hares can do this. And how does this work from a genetic perspective? All right. So if anybody's going to take anything away from this conversation today is that it always comes back to the genes. So in the example of the snowshoe hare, as well as the example of the <clears throat> arctic fox, actually, they have genes that code for the change in this color season out seasonally, right? So like... Uh, seasonality and the amount of daylight, especially for the snowshoe hare, will trigger this gene to upregulate or downregulate, um, thereby changing the color of the snowshoe hare's coat, right? And so that's something that we might explore. You know, there's a hypothesis that we could generate when we're extracting the DNA and the RNA from deerling and analyzing it using a sequencer to see whether or not it's upregulated or downregulated. So um, that would probably be my first, uh, I guess, hypothesis about deerling is that it's a similar mechanism. And here is our example of upregulation and downregulation for children. Perfect. Which is what? Deerling. Arctic fox and the foxes. 
You wanted one for children, and here it is. This example, this example brought to you by Child Friendly. Uh, all right, so Dean, a few Pokemon actually evolved into one or two different things based upon like their IVs, those those values that they carry. Sometimes, you know, like those are, and those IVs are often set like when they're hatched. So, like, how could we explain like something like Tyrogue, which can become like Hitmonchan or Hitmonlee or Hitmontop, based upon its stats? I guess uh, do the IVs of Tyrogue determine the direction of evolution? Like, can you tell when a Tyrogue is going to become a Hitmonchan yeah. or Hitmonlee? Yeah, you can you can look at the stats and it it automatically determines which one it's going to. Okay, well, uh, you could, you know, explain it as being maybe like some of the IVs have like dominant or recessive uh, gene properties, right? So, you know, if, if it's if it's A, then X, if it's B, then Y, right? So it's probably just, I would guess, as simple as something along those lines where, you know, it's predetermined. It's a deterministic gene that we can predict is going to be, you know, Hitmonchan or Hitmonlee, right? And so they have a, there's a gene. This is not necessarily RNA, right? We're going back to DNA because you're not expressing a gene. They're not upregulating or downregulating a gene for this, right? It's just inherited uh, genomic information, right? So um, yeah, there's going to be upregulation and downregulation of genes during this process, but it's really more going back to the genome and whether or not a certain gene is this mutation or that mutation. Okay, so how does genetics explain things like shiny or discolored Pokemon? Like, there's a special Pichu in one of the movies who has spiky fur on one of his ears. How would genetics explain differences like this? Um, so we're going to uh, probably explain this with uh, random mutations, right? And so you can see lots of real-world examples of this in most organisms that exist, actually. And it manifests pretty commonly as a, a change in, in color of their of their skin or scales or, or what have you. And so, you know, a couple of examples would be, you know, you've seen in the news every winter that somebody sees an albino deer or something, right? And uh, in their backyard. And so that would be an example of a random mutation. But sometimes these mutations have a rate and we can identify, you know, or predict how many uh albino deer might exist in a population of 10,000 deer and some of these mutations actually have uh, beneficial qualities to them such that those mutations may become more common so an example would be uh, there's a melanistic uh, darker version of a garter snake and reptiles are cold-blooded and so their metabolism is driven by sunlight and a darker uh, scale color will absorb more of that sunlight as heat making their metabolism better. And so they can be active more often. And uh, so those, you know, random mutations are, are definitely real world examples. And that's why you might see some of those rare kind of exotic Pokemon that pop up every now and then that look special. Awesome. That's actually exactly what I was kind of thinking. So you just confirmed what I was thinking. Thank you. So one Pokemon, Spinda, has a randomly generated spot pattern based upon various randomly generated numbers in the game. So how would that correlate to how genetics works when it comes to traits an organism has? And I guess, uh, so I'll ask a question first. So is this like... It's a panda, and it's 
<clears throat> it has like different spot patterns. It's literally just a random yeah, like number. little like swirls and stuff. Yeah. Um, okay. But, like 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 there's hundreds of combinations. Okay, so does that happen like once, or is that like an ability or something? No, it's just like each one has a different pattern. Oh, okay. it has nothing to do with like anything else. It's just yep. pattern on the yeah. It, it literally is on. tied into like the number that's generated when it's created. Okay, well, I guess you know there would probably <clears throat> be a real weird situation there. Now we would have to determine, you know, if it's a random, if it's a random number generator. Could that be like cow spots? Yeah, I mean, sure. Or you can think of like calico cats too. Oh. Um, so calico cats have these, I guess, inactivated X chromosomes called bar bodies, and that determines the different patterning. Um, and that's why all calico cats are actually female as well. Uh, but, you know, you may have something, some sort of mechanism like that. It could be explained in a lot of different ways. Or there could be a random suite of genes that are just, you know, have an equal chance of being on or off. And there's, just in the Spinda's genome has X amount of genes that code for X amount of different, I guess, possibilities. And then those possibilities are all equal or something like that. They're in perfect Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium, as we would call it, which is no sexual selection based on uh, color. So that's why in Northeast Ohio, you have gray squirrels and you have black squirrels and they hybridize indiscriminately right and so you end up with these gray squirrels with black tails and stuff like that so we're just gonna say that <laughs> so we're currently talking about a lot of variations in pokemon that we see within the game so kind of thinking about the opposite of that um what do you think about po what is your honest opinion about pokemon that are everywhere throughout the regions but actually don't change what they look like or anything like that an example that comes to mind is magikarp where you find it basically everywhere and end in every game so this is kind of like a two-pronged answer because those, the fact that a, a Magikarp, for example, is everywhere, but also conserved, as in it's in every game and been around a long time, are probably two different mechanisms at work. So uh, the fact that it's everywhere, um, that's what we call a cosmopolitan species in the world of biology. And that just means... Um, it's a generalist. It can live everywhere. You know, you've probably heard of invasive carp entering the Great Lakes. Perhaps, maybe not, but now you've one, heard of one it. Of our, one of our uh, cast members deals with that. Oh, well, there you have it. So, yeah, it's, a, it's a, an organism that can ubiquitously live everywhere because it's a generalist and a survivor. It can um, And it tastes like crap. No one wants to eat it. Yeah, yeah. So that's another thing. That's why like zebra mussels and quagga mussels currently exist in Great Lakes as well and are invading them because nothing will eat them because they're gross. But <laughs> um, yeah, so there's one answer, right? So it's, it fills that niche, as we talked about earlier, as being kind of a generalist and can kind of thrive in any environment, right? It's just uh, able to live where, where it pleases and outcompete more specialist organisms there because it's just better at doing what they're doing. So the question of its conserved nature of why we're seeing it over time and it's not changed at all, um, different organisms can kind of settle into their niches so that their evolution, so to speak, somewhat, I don't want to say stops, uh, but it slows, right? And so you can think of some ancestral organisms that exist on Earth um, that have been around for hundreds of millions of years, far longer than, say, humans have been around, right? So a couple of examples of this would be 
like the sponge is one of the earliest examples. I mean, you have Agnathans, uh, which is a class of uh, jawless fish. And uh, those exist currently in our area as well, the Great Lakes, right? So those are lampreys. Now lampreys, a lot of people like, I guess, wince at the name of them because you commonly think of them sucking on the sides of fish and parasitizing things. But a lot of them are actually filter feeders and pretty cool. Um, from that perspective. And then another local Great Lakes, for those Great Lakes listeners, uh, example would be uh, the sturgeon, right? It's another example of something that's been around a really long time. Uh, Chondrichthys are cartilaginous fish, and that would be like sharks, rays, stuff like that, right? They are from a time before, like, I guess, bones were a thing, you know, before they were hit. (laughs) Before they were in vogue. Before before bones caught on. Right. Yeah, you know, so um, they're kind of like the baby boomer fish of the oceans. <laughs> baby boomer fish. <laughs> um, so I guess, yeah, that's my answer for, you know, why is Magikarp still around and why is he hanging out? Why is he not changing? Uh, it's because he's settled into kind of like a cushy role in the environment, right? He's thriving. Magikarp is thriving. Magikarp, the baby boomer. I'm imagining it being a Karen now. All right. So some Pokemon can be both like acid and toxic or even expel multiple kinds of poisons or gases from their body. So how would we explain how this would work from genetic perspective when it comes to having multiple excretions as well as the ability to switch between them at will? So I guess my answer would be is that none of those abilities would have to be mutually exclusive, right? So those those Pokemon would just need to have the necessary equipment to perform all of those functions. So whether or not they're switching between them using a specific specialized organ or something along those lines where it can switch between like a, a venom and a poisonous gas, or if they have separate organs for that, you know, it's... It comes back to the blueprint set forth by their genome or their DNA, right? And so the switching between them would obviously be switching on and off different genes, upregulating and downregulating genes, right? So their genome would be expressing different genes, transcribing into RNA, translating into protein, building that acid, and then spitting it in the eyes of some poor Pikachu, right? So that would be, I guess, my answer to that. (laughs) And not spitting it in the eyes of enough Magikarp. That's why they're still here. Exactly. So um, some regional forms are a new part of the Pokemon world. Um, introduced in Gen 7. So these new forms are regional variants of older Pokemon. One example is Sandlash, who's normally a ground type. But the Alolan Sandslash is an ice type. Also, the Alolan Dugtrio looks more like a boy band than the original Doug Trio. So how would we explain the differences between them with genetics? <laughs> so uh, this is what I would like to explain away with genetic drift and natural selection and isolated populations, right? So maybe you would have these isolated populations separated physically, right? So they could be separated by an ocean. They could be separated by a mountain range. Um, But when you kind of pigeonhole these different populations of the same species, they're naturally going to uh, change to adapt to that specific environment, right? Because those environments 
have a high likelihood of at least being a little bit different. And so you end up with these islandized populations of this species that are forming their own genetic pools and natural selection, which is going to select for the most quote unquote fit or individuals within that population is going to drive that genetic change. Right. And so over X amount of years, you know, this can happen at any rate, you would start to notice these differences, but the key would be that they're genetically isolated. Right. And so um, if you, even if you, you can see diversity in even, you know, the human population, right. So that's all from the same types of mechanisms. You know, it's these, we have these isolated populations that uh, drift genetically away from each other and have their own unique kind of qualities. And uh, that's probably how I would explain that. All right. I've got one more question for you. Some unrelated animals develop similar traits or adaptations independently of each other, where it's once again hard. Wings for flight is one example. Like a bug Pokemon like Scyther, a flying Pokemon like Pidgeotto, or a dragon Pokemon Flygon all have wings, but none of them like appear to have a common ancestor. How does genetics explain how such different creatures can arrive with the same traits? All right. Well, uh, first I will correct you in that they do have a common ancestor and it's a microbe. Uh, secondly, <laughs> um, of course it's a gotcha. microbe. What else would it be? I was hoping but... you were going to say like, it's a chicken. Oh, no, no. The chicken also comes from the microbe. Yeah. But anyways, to, to seriously answer your question, we considered that under the umbrella of convergent evolution, right? It's a type of evolution where you have these different species adopting a similar quality because they're filling a niche. So we're coming full circle here, right? So, you know, typically the example I think of, because it's the example I was given in school, uh, is cacti. Um, different types of succulents that exist in a similar niche, but isolated, right? So stuff that you would see in an African desert compared to a desert in the Chihuahua desert or something like that, right? And you're going to have these plants that have similar qualities, but are in no way genetically related. They just adapted to those environments similarly, right? And so that's why you will have, uh, you might think of birds and bats and insects that are flying um, or flying type Pokemon. It's driven by these, these, I guess, opportunities for niches to be filled, right? Or niches that have opened that need filled by an organism and an organism is going to kind of be railroaded into filling that niche so that it can continue to survive as a species, right? And that may oftentimes uh, require similar traits like flying. So a question I have for you, uh, Dean, is thinking about how as the different generations have gone on, some of the Pokemon have actually gotten new evolutions in these different regions. Uh, the only example that comes to mind is in the new Pokemon Scarlet and Violet, where Dunsparce now has Dun Dunsparce as its evolution. And so like, how can this be explained through genetics or through the lens of genetics? And would adding these new evolutions to re-release games kind of take away from this real-world tie-in that we have in? Yeah, I guess uh, I don't know how I would explain that other than environmental triggers, right? So 
It sounds almost like epigenetic-y in a way. Uh, so that's, it's... that's not this episode. I was told very clearly that's not this episode. <laughs> well, maybe I don't understand epigenetics fully. It's like what I, I kind of least understand. Sorry, you can't explain that here. That's next time. <laughs> well, you know, I don't know. It must be like, I, I guess I would imagine like some sort of environmental trigger. But if you were to reintroduce that back into an environment where it wasn't previously doing that, then I can see like maybe some immersion being interrupted. But you know, there's some continuity there. Sure, that could be world breaking. You know, I, I don't have a specific mechanism in mind, uh, I guess, to to explain that other than maybe there's an environmental trigger that unlocks some sort of latent gene, so to speak, that resulted in its evolution. And that gene is only unlocked in a certain environment or something along those lines. So kind of going back to the more controversial section of the podcast about genetic engineering and genetic modification, we can kind of see that happening in the Pokemon series from uh, day one uh, with uh, Porygon, which is quote unquote made of programming code, and also Mewtwo, which was a genetically modified version of Mew. So what do you think about these original examples of genetic modifications and engineering in the original Pokemon series? You know, I guess... You know, it depends on on their, I guess, makeup. Because when I think about those two examples, I see kind of two different situations, right? So you've got Mewtwo, who is a biologically engineered, gene-edited kind of amalgamation uh, Pokemon that, you know, they went in and created this in a lab, right? Whereas Porygon... Yeah, I don't know enough about Porygon to know if it was a Pokemon and was augmented with code or if it's literally a robot. But, uh, you know, I guess I don't have anything too too wrong with it, but it does touch on the subjects of, uh, you know, like products of like AI, artificial intelligence and bioengineering, both topics that we're kind of like discussing today, um, the pros and cons of those things and the limitations that we should be setting on them. But um, I guess, uh, you know, from a per- from my perspective, I think it's pretty cool. I don't know. I'm all about mad science. <laughs> if I could, if I could be a cyborg, I would be. Trust me. <laughs> and then, kind of going back to Mew, uh, when you look at their different, um, the different Pokedex entries for Mew, it's said to contain the genetic codes of all Pokemon. How does this kind of impact what you see in the game in terms of traits and different abilities that you see Pokemon using? And the, uh, the fact that apparently Mew can use all of these different traits or has all of these different traits and abilities. Ah, so, so Mew is kind of like Schrodinger's Diglett. He is and also <laughs> isn't all of the Pokemon. All right. So like was Mew like biologically engineered or is no, he... No, Mew is supposed to be like, I don't know if it's supposed to be like Pokemon. Like It's sometimes either the progenitor of all the Pokemon or... Something along those lines. It doesn't seem to be straightforward in the Pokédex entries. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it depends on on its relationship, right? It depends on Mew's relationship to all these Pokémon. It has all the genes, um, so if it is an ancestor, then sign me up. That sounds like a microbe to me, right? So uh, <laughs> Mew is a Mew's, giant microbe. Yeah, Mew is microbe. Mew's are giant <laughs> single cellular Pokémon. Oh my god! Yeah. <laughs> Um, but otherwise, I mean, you know, if it was more of like an engineered thing, which it doesn't sound like it was, but you know, they would have to find some combination of genes to just make it so that it is the way that it is. Um, it's hard to explain all that. Take a lot of thought, but 
yeah, I guess, you know, if it's a common ancestor, it, it doesn't have to be a microbe, right? So it could be that there are lots of other organisms, right? Like, obviously, the humans in the Pokemon universe don't come from Mew. Speak for but, yourself. Yeah. <laughs> but they could share a common ancestor, right? Um, that doesn't go as far back as a microbe. So, But the fact that it would have all codes or share, I guess, all of the uh, moves of the other Pokemon is a bit unusual, right? That would suggest that pretty much every Pokemon going forward is just losing traits as it evolves, which is, is not something that we would think of as being advantageous from a biological perspective. I have an alternative hypothesis. What if Mew is actually stealing all the new genetic codes that Pokemon make? That would make him a microbe because microbes share genes. Excellent. <laughs> we have... Mew is microbe. Yep. It's all a microbe. So... I'll ask the last question. Uh, what physical traits in Pokemon do you find the most fascinating from a genetic standpoint, Dean? So what's your, what's the love of your life in Pokemon? Um, that's a good question. I guess, you know, I would be... It's clearly not primate. <laughs> no. Poor primate. I, I guess, like, from, from a, a purely curiosity perspective uh, i'd be interested in learning more about those micro or not microbes oh always comes back to microbes about micro those pokemon i'd be interested in learning about those pokemon uh which possess abilities that we don't see in real world examples right like these psychic pokemon fire breathing pokemon you know those would be probably the first i would start with because we don't see those examples in in nature so much on earth here in reality so wait you've never seen a taper create a black hole I have not, but I would be willing to see a taper-generated black hole. And if that does <laughs> exist and you're holding that information from me, then I didn't know we were such distant friends. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, I guess, you know, I would start there because I'm like, what genes What genes do they have? And, you know, how can those be, I guess, used advantageously in my, you know, future cyborg self-experiment? Um, but I'm also interested in Ditto. You know, Ditto is cool because it changes in everything. And, uh, you know, what's causing that kind of cool biomimicry that also includes the abilities, I assume, of the, the Pokemon it's mimicking, right? That's super cool. So they're, they're, those would be my first go-to, I guess, uh, you know, Pokemon to ethically experiment with. Okay. Well, that was uh, lots of fun. Honestly, thank you for coming back. Ain't no thang. Happy to be here. Thanks for having me. <laughs> hey, thanks for being here for the first time with me. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah, this was great. Thanks, Dean. No problem. Thanks, Ray. Thanks, Brittany and Madison, of course. Yeah. Always great catching up and yeah. talking nerd talk and science and all that good stuff. Happy to know about microbes. It was great having you. Thank you. Uh, thanks, Ray and Brittany, for being here with me today. Love y'all. Goodbye. Bye-bye.